APU. American Public University is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Intellectable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Deal. Today, we're talking about recent evolutions in employment law. My guest today is Professor Rhonda Reeves. Rhonda is a professor of law at Florida A&M University College of Law in Orlando, Florida. She teaches classes in employment law, employment discrimination, law, and property law. She writes in the area of race and gender discrimination in employment law. Rhonda is a graduate of Yale University and Stanford Law School. Rhonda originally hails from Los Angeles, California, where she practiced law for several years before becoming a law professor. Rhonda, welcome to Intellectable, and thank you for being our guest today. Thank you, Gary, for inviting me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So I know that there's been some recent happenings, particularly at the Supreme Court, federal Supreme Court level, um, that I want to get into. But in the interest of giving our listeners a proper context, you know, a lot of our listeners are not attorneys and may not be completely familiar with uh, how employment law works, particularly in the areas of discrimination protections. And there are a lot of misunderstandings out there about, you know, what is and is not protected. And of course, going state by state, there's a lot of changes and variations in those laws. But can you provide a brief history, you know, a summary of, of sort of what the federal law, at least at the national level, says about, you know, what's protected, what an employer can or can't do, you know, in terms of employment action toward people based on the protected characteristics and what is not protected in that context? I would be happy to. So when it comes to federal law, there are, most of this area is governed by a few federal statutes. And the main statute is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Title VII basically says it's unlawful for an employer to discriminate because of someone's protected status. And so it doesn't mean that it prohibits all discrimination. It prohibits discrimination on a few specific bases. And those are race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. And so the statute says it's unlawful for an employer to discriminate in employment on those bases. There is another federal statute, the Age Discrimination in Employment Act, which is relevant for our discussion. It's a separate federal statute, but it basically says the same. It's unlawful to discriminate because of someone's age. One of the main misconceptions about that is it only applies to employees that are age 40 and over. And then one other statute, the Americans with Disabilities Act, protects against discrimination because of someone's disability. Perfect. Now, when we talk about the Civil Rights Act, and I just know because I've experienced that these terms are often misinterpreted or confused for one another, when we say something like race versus color, how does the law recognize or distinguish a difference between those two classes as protected? Is there a difference at all? And and what does that mean for employees and employers? That is a great question. I was just talking to my class about this yesterday, and unfortunately, Congress doesn't say what they mean. So it's been left completely to the courts to interpret what these terms really mean. And when it comes to race and color, you really don't see the courts willing to take that on. So generally, they just accept how the plaintiffs frame their case, whether you're bringing a race claim, which is by far the most common, versus a color claim. Sometimes you might see a color discrimination claim when you have sort of this intragroup claims where someone is saying, yes, this is a minority employer. Let's say it's a 
a, a black employer and I'm a black employee, but they discriminated against me because I was either too dark or too light. This sort of colorism claim is where you can sometimes see that play out as a distinction between just a race claim. But for the most part, courts take a hands-off approach and don't very often interrogate what that means. Sure. It seems that the important takeaway there is that there's a lot of nuance and people tend to think that the law is very black and white in these areas. But obviously, you know, as you just pointed out, there's some lack of clarity that evolves over time as we kind of figure out what these terms mean through cases and arguments. No, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the most difficult things about this area, just our social conception of what race means. People have different conceptions of that. There's no one standard definition or understanding of what it means. Well, look at the census, for example. I mean, the census over time has created categories of race and erased them 10 years later, for example. So it really is something that lacks a sort of, of black and white definition. And to throw one more term in there that makes things even more confusing and complicated is ethnicity. And I know this from seeing job applications and, and helping to structure job applications. You usually, if you have the EEOC questionnaire in your job application, there's usually a question on race. And this involves the white, black, or Caucasian, African-American, Pacific Islander, Native American, and so on. And then you have ethnicity. And that question is usually either Hispanic or not. So where do you, do you have any context in terms of why <laughs> that's seems to be an odd one to leave out of the rest. <laughs> oh, I so wish for your listeners' sake that there were <laughs> there was some easy explanation for all of this. But again, I mean, we think of race as really, it's not a biological characteristic. It's a social construct that has changed over time. And again, a lot of these, when you're talking about job applications, employers are required to keep certain statistics. So that's why you encounter these things. And a lot of times the categories that you see on an employment application are pretty much paralleling what the census is asking you. So the census changed to ask that ethnicity question, Hispanic or non-Hispanic. And then once you answer that question, then they have you do the race question. So non-Hispanic, but I'm white, black, Pacific Islander. I mean, it's fascinating. I've been recently reading articles about the background for how those categories have appeared and disappeared from the census and groups who have spent, you know, years advocating for their own category and the meanings behind that. It's really fascinating. So obviously there's tons of different sort of variations there that one might be able to compile between the different characteristics. And then, of course, national origin seems a little bit more straightforward in the sense that it would denote one's country of origin, but also it doesn't necessarily require that you have been born in that country to avail yourself of protections from, you know, say, if you're an Italian-American, but you weren't born in, in Italy, if someone discriminates against you based on your Italian-American heritage, that could be construed as, as a type of national origin discrimination. Is that correct? In a sense, yes. So there isn't very much case law on this. And again, Congress offered really no, not much in the way of explanation. But the simple definition that most courts follow is national origin means the place where you or your ancestors came from. Now, in terms of the relationship between national origin and ethnicity, there's certainly a lot of overlap, but it's not clear they mean exactly the same things. But in your situation, if you're saying, I was discriminated against because I'm 
Cuban American or or I was raised in, you know, Haiti, then you can bring it as a national origin claim. But remember, you have to think about how this is going to play out in court. You have to show that you were discriminated against because of your national origin, because of where you or your ancestors came from. Right. And, and so I guess to provide that bigger question there of, with regard to any of these cases, how does a, a person establish that? I mean, short of an employer saying to you or putting in writing, the reason that I didn't hire you is because you are black or because you are uh, you know, from a particular country. How does one establish that that's the reason? And so that's, of course, the hardest part, because rarely do you have an employer that's going to admit that they took an action because of your race or something along those lines. So you have to prove it usually offering circumstantial evidence, offering indications from which a jury can infer that the reason was because of. They treated all of the white people one way and they treated you a different way. So even though they may not have said it's because of your race, the question is, could a jury or a fact finder infer that that's why it was? Sure. Absolutely. Now, we talked about some of the Title VII protected classes. I know you mentioned the ADEA, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act earlier, and the cutoff is 40. Um, As you mentioned, that people 40 years of age and older are protected, and and those, at least at the federal level, are not, although some state laws cover the entire spectrum of age. But for those thinking about that and going, why in the world did Congress decide that 40 was an important threshold there? Is there any context? Is there any clue as to what the reason for that was? Again, I think it's because there is a good amount of data that sort of suggests that as you get older, employers are more likely to make decisions based on age to make assumptions about you because of your age so that it makes it harder for you to gain employment as you get up in those areas. And there could be lots of reasons for that. One is sometimes the stereotype that as you get older, you you know, you lose a step, right? You're not going to be as willing to embrace new technology, for example, or they think you're going to cost them more in terms of health care costs. And so whenever you're making these sorts of group-based distinctions, it's not perfect. 40 is, is an arbitrary cutoff. Sure. And there are certainly people, my mom's in her 80s and is in better shape than most people I know. So, <laughs> but it's to get to the sort of idea that employers may have an incentive to not hire people or to treat them differently as they age. Got it. Now, there's a few other fundamentals that I think it's it's worth covering here to set the proper stage for what we'll be talking about in the second half. So one of the other concepts that I think it's important to demystify for our listening audience, and I think this is as good a time as any to disclose that uh, the reason that I invited Professor Reeves here is that you were one of my law professors at Florida A&M years ago. So I appreciate you once again being here with us. And I think that the concepts of what the law refers to as disparate treatment and disparate impact are really important for listeners to understand in the employment discrimination context so that people realize how different cases are made for discrimination in the workplace. So could you offer a little bit of thoughts on, uh, you know, in terms of what the difference between those two concepts are and how they're argued in a legal context? Absolutely. So again, going back to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it talks about it's unlawful to discriminate because of someone's race or sex or national origin. And it It was left to the courts to determine how do you prove such a thing? What does that because of language mean? And there are basically two major theories that have arisen. One is called disparate treatment. And that means you basically have to show intent, that the employer intentionally discriminated against you because of your protected characteristic. Disparate impact, on the other hand, does not have an intent requirement. So basically, you're looking at whether an employer's policy had 
a disparate impact on a group, whether or not they intended that impact. Got it. Could you, for the sake of clarity, could you give us an example of each so that we can kind of understand like a policy that would likely be found to be culpable under disparate treatment versus a policy that would be, you know, a problem under disparate impact? Of course, under disparate treatment, you're really looking at the motivations of the decision maker. So if you're talking about because so you discriminated against someone, you wouldn't hire them or you terminated them because they were black, for example. It was an intentional act. That's what they meant to have happen. That was what motivated them was someone's race. As opposed to disparate impact, where you're looking at a policy and let's say you have a policy about height requirements. That height requirement, depending on where it's set, may have a disparate impact on women who tend as a group to be shorter than men. Now, of course, there are exceptions to all of that, but as a rule, that's probably going to have a disparate impact on women. There have been cases about, you know, height and weight requirements when it comes to employment in, let's say, law enforcement. And so with the disparate impact, the courts are really interrogating employers to say, once we've established that it has a disparate impact, you have to show us that you really need it. Or is it unnecessarily excluding otherwise qualified people? I think the takeaway from that, if I understood you correctly, is that we're interested not just with whether you intended to discriminate, but whether the policies that you carry as an employer have the effect of discriminating. And I think that can sort of be muddied in cases where people might intentionally try to discriminate, but hide it through facially benign policies. And I'm thinking, I use the classic example in my business law classes of the old, old days, the Jim Crow laws, where, uh, you know, in order to vote, it wasn't a prohibition on voting based on race because that would have been illegal per se, but it was a requirement that if you want to be able to vote, you have to be literate. And so, you know, although that is facially neutral in the sense that anybody who's literate, be they black or white or any other color, is eligible to vote, it had the effect of discriminating on one portion of the population much more than the other due to literacy level differences in the post-slavery society you know, that we lived in in the, in the late 1800s. I think you're absolutely right about that, that that was one of the considerations for why the courts determined, the Supreme Court determined that recognizing disparate impact was so important because they recognized that it would be easy to circumvent the disparate treatment or the intentional discrimination provisions by coming up with some facially neutral policy, but that had the exact same impact. Absolutely. The one other piece that I wanted to cover to set the proper stage for the listening audience is the concept of a bona fide occupational qualification. And this is, of course, a tool that can be used or, or a, I want to use the term loosely, a loophole in the law that allows for certain types of legal discrimination that would otherwise be illegal, provided certain circumstances are present. So can you offer a little bit on what a BFOQ is and, and how it's typically used? Absolutely. And your, and your description is right. It is a loophole. It is an exception to the prohibition on discrimination. And it's a statutory exception in Title VII. But what's important, and people often don't realize, that BFOQ is, does not apply to race. So they've made a determination, the Congress, that there is never a bona fide occupational reason for discriminating on the basis of race. So BFOQ applies to the other bases that are protected under Title VII. And sort of the rationale behind it was this concept that Congress thought that there were relevant differences on the basis of gender, for example, and that where there is a relevant difference that's necessary to the job, 
then employers can discriminate on the basis of sex, for example. But it was intended to be a very narrow exception. Got it. And, and I think the reason why I was reluctant to use the word loophole is that it often has such a negative connotation. And I don't mean to imply that every instance of a BFOQ is somehow morally indefensible. So you mentioned gender. Are there examples in industries that you can offer in terms of where a gender BFOQ has been substantiated by the courts and, and is arguably appropriate under the circumstances? I think those may be, in my mind, two different questions. There are certainly examples where the courts have upheld BFOQs. I can't swear to you that I agree that in all of those cases, they were morally right in their decision to uphold a BFOQ. Sure. And some of these are older cases, because a lot of times when you talk about BFOQs as it relates to gender, there are a lot of gender stereotypes that play into the perceived difference that employers are making. Sure. So for example, if you're saying there was a case where BFOQ was upheld for not allowing women prison guards at a maximum security prison in Alabama, and this is an, an old case from the 70s, but this idea that BFOQ means that there is a reason why women can't do the job. But in that case, the reasons that were offered was because they would be subject to prisoners' sexual abuse or the other guards might feel paternalistic towards them or things like those, which I have some questions about in the dissent and a dissent by Justice Thurgood Marshall. He talks about, you know, you can't blame women because of the poor state of Alabama prisons, that they're so dangerous. Sure. That brings up in that specific context another question that is still being wrestled with, and that is for gender isolated prisons or, or gender specific prisons, usually male prisoners are held in, in one facility and females in another. There aren't a lot of examples of co-ed prisons. Is it appropriate you know, under the law or has it been legally substantiated that you can justify staffing a male prisoner prison with only male security officers or vice versa so as not to create uh, privacy conflicts or the propensity for abuse issues. Is there any BFOQ precedent on that level in the prison context? So at the Supreme Court level, there's the one case that I referenced. There are some other cases perhaps at lower levels, but just in general, when you're talking about BFOQs on the basis of gender, the kinds of situations that courts have recognized BFOQs, one is where there are privacy concerns, like you were mentioning. Mm. The other has been safety concerns, has been another area where BFOQs have been upheld, at least in the lower courts. Sure. And when I think about safety, I think about the Federal Aviation Administration's ban on pilot employment after 60. Um, and that was challenged in the courts, you know, on BFOQ grounds, but ultimately was upheld that the Federal Aviation Authority or administration can rightfully force pilots into retirement at 60 on the grounds that were the belief, right, wrong, or indifferent. And that's an entirely separate discussion that, you know, after a certain age, we know that faculties and reaction time decline with age. Now, that's not to say that every pilot that hits the age of 60 or 61 is so untrustworthy or decrepit at that point that they can't be trusted to fly an airplane. But that's the current state of affairs, at least in that regard. Right. You think about how 60 years old today and 60 years old 50 years ago, right, in terms of the fitness and the health of those sorts of things. So I was actually on a plane once where the pilot was forced to retire. They announced, you know, oh, it's his birthday and his last flight. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> but in the case you're talking about, so there's actually an FAA requirement about pilots, but the case where the Supreme Court took this up was whether pilots could move to the third position in the cockpit, the flight 
recorder position. Mm. I forget what exactly the, the title of that position is. Sure. And why couldn't they still be that? And you're right. The court ultimately said, you know, it's too hard to tell which 60 year olds are likely to have a cardiac event at 20,000 feet. So we're just going to uphold the rule that none of them can do the job. Right. And, and, you know, one could argue that in the interest of safety, that might be the most cautious approach and perhaps on that grounds, the best approach. But it's interesting when accidents due to motor vehicle fatalities on the road are so much higher, and yet there are no requirements that people give up their driver's license at certain ages or that they even have to retest, you know, and, and we've all seen our fair of folks out there that we question at all ages, you know, whether they should be behind the wheel. Sometimes it seems antithetical to the logic of the issue. Well, the conflict is really between making decisions based on general group characteristics and individual characteristics. So, for example, for older drivers, a lot of times states have requirements that you get tested more frequently. So we're trying to make sure that the individual driver of whatever age has the skills to be on the road, safely on the road, right, rather than barring all drivers over a certain age. Sure. Absolutely. Some type of testing to establish their their fitness to continue doing what they're doing. When I think about BFOQ, I often think about the, the famous Hooters case, and that's the case that, because uh, I teach in hospitality, the idea that the argument there, of course, was Hooters was alleging they should only be able to hire female wait staff and, and restaurant staff on the grounds that this was essential to their brand image. And ultimately, they never reached a verdict on that case. They settled pre-verdict. But usually when that happens, it's a good indication that they were not anticipating winning. So <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. Well, that's because... You know, in these cases where the Supreme Court has upheld BFLQs, it's talked about the employer has to show that the characteristic that they're discriminating based on is essential to their business. And the problem with the Hooters cases is they're servers. So the argument that's raised is anybody can serve wings. Yeah. (laughs) You don't have to be wearing a tight T-shirt and short shorts to serve wings. And so the employer's argument is, oh, well, the essence of the business is to serve wings in a sexually titillating atmosphere or something along those lines. Sure. Yeah. Which ultimately was, uh, I think, unpersuasive or was thought to be unpersuasive, hence the uh, several million dollar settlements and the concession by Hooters that they would make some staff positions, uh, I believe, like bartenders and barbacks, et cetera, were open to to males uh, as previously were not. And remember, most of these cases come down to money. You get better tips in the serving positions than you did if, you know, the men who are just going to be the host seating people. Sure. And so that's where these conflicts arise. Now, one other question before we move to the cases at hand that that have recently come up before the Supreme Court, the question under BFOQ about entertainment, and I know that this has gone on for some time and it seems to be unsettled. Lin-Manuel Miranda, among others, was sort of criticized for this because I believe he had made some public statements when selecting cast for the hit show Hamilton that he said, look, you know, we are going to promote minorities no matter what. And that seemed to be prima facie discrimination based on protected classes, as we've discussed previously. But can you offer any clarity as to the rules and entertainment? If I want to make a movie about Abraham Lincoln, am I allowed to exclude an African-American woman because she doesn't fit the historical likeness? If I have a fictional story about, say, Harry Potter, am I allowed to exclude women because the character that I invented is a male? How does that work with regard to performance and entertainment? So again, it really is unsettled. The Supreme Court has never taken up this issue. There is quite a bit of academic literature out there. So in terms of the legal rules, the BFOQ, as I mentioned earlier, there is no BFOQ for race. So in theory, 
you can't make decisions, employment decisions, casting decisions that exclude people based on race. But what's unique about the entertainment industry is also those sort of First Amendment potential issues that arise in terms of artistic freedom. And also, I think a lot of the literature talks about it may be a difference in terms of authenticity, whether that should be recognized as an essential concern. So, for example, if you're making a historical film, so I always use the example of if you're retelling the story of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King Jr., would the law really prohibit you from only casting Black actors in that role? So that's the sort of rationale that underlies some of these concerns when it comes to the entertainment is what do you need to authentically portray the role consistent with the artistic vision? Right. And I think there are persuasive arguments on both sides of those kinds of debates, but I know that that's reared its head in the past and and will continue to do so until we get some kind of precedent. I'm thinking about, and this is again an example of a fictional character, but there was a, a lot of uproar in the last few years around the public support for the actor Idris Elba to play James Bond. Yes. And there's a lot of debate about that. Or should there be a female James Bond in the future or someone to take on that mantle? And, you know, there's divisive opinions, of course, among the, the public about it, but whether or not you can do that legally of course, is another matter. I think it's very different than trying to accurately portray a historical event like, you know, the civil rights movement or something along that, an actual person versus a fictional character. And so what some academics have recommended, because a lot of this comes up into how things are cast, is that many of the roles that we're casting for don't necessarily need to be cast along racial lines in order to make the product that you're seeking to make to make it entertaining, for example. So there has been a press, especially by minority actors in the entertainment industry, that the current casting roles or the procedures exclude them when there is really no basis for doing that other than that somebody happened to say, when they described the character, they said a white person as opposed to this, as opposed to the characteristics that are necessary for the role. And race really isn't relevant to that. Perfect. We've been speaking with Professor Rhonda Reeves about the history and foundation of employment law. When we come back, we'll be talking about recent evolutions from the Supreme Court. We'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. And we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Professor Rhonda Reeves. Today, we're talking about recent evolutions in employment law. So in the first half of this episode, we talked about the foundations of employment law that go back as far as the 60s and forward with uh, recent evolutions. So one of the cases that recently came up because we talked about the protected classes that are covered under the Civil Rights Act, Title VII specifically, the race, color, national origin, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act that added age to that list. I guess I should set the stage this way before we get to the Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia case. Was gender recognized in the original Title VII employment coverage of the Civil Rights Act? Another interesting question. What Congress said in the statute was sex, but certainly our conceptions of sex and gender have evolved over time. So they do not make any specific reference in the statute to gender. What they say is because of sex. 
Right. Okay. Perfect. And so that brings us to a recent case this summer. Uh, we're having this episode, of course, in 2020. And um, the Supreme Court ruled on the Bostock case regarding the interpretation of sex and the historical precedent that gender was protected under the language of sex in the statute. But of course, this is an application not just to gender, but also to sexual orientation and gender identity. So can you talk a little bit about what that case involved and how it changed the precedent? Yes, absolutely. And you're right to say that that has been a seminal case in the area, right? Groundbreaking in its interpretation. And it's actually three separate cases that the court heard. Two of the cases involved gay men, and that's the Bostock and then the Altitude Express versus Zarda. And one case involved a trans woman, and that was R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes versus Stevens. Mm. And just you know, for the listeners to know, the reason the Supreme Court heard the cases together is because they raised similar issues, because all three cases involved an interpretation of the same statutory language, specifically what it means to discriminate because of sex, and so the issue was, does that language, because of sex, include sexual orientation and gender identity? Sure. Frankly, it was brilliant the way that this was argued from the standpoint of interpreting sex and how an argument towards sexual orientation can be made on the basis of a gender protection without needing specific additional congressional action to protect sexual orientation. Can you talk a little bit about how the argument was made to interpret protections for sex as also protecting specifically, uh, we can make the the logical leap to say that if males are protected for their, their attribute of being males and females are protected for their attribute of being females, I think it's only a small step forward to make the additional leap that if someone is a person of different gender, you know, someone who identifies as a gender that's different from their biological origin or their anatomy that's listed on their driver's license, that that too would be protected regardless of those particular uh, dynamics or characteristics. But I think it was really interesting how the argument was made that this should also extend to sexual orientation. Talk a little bit about how that argument was weaved to pave the way for those protections. Certainly. And you're right. Part of what's fascinating about this case is the sort of legal strategy behind how the case was presented, for example. So what's curious about this case is this, you know, we have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court. And so generally not progressive in their approaches. But in this case, the majority opinion is written by Justice Gorsuch, one of the conservative members of the court. And the case comes out in the plaintiff's favor. So for a lot of people, that was a surprising outcome. But from listening to the strategies that the lawyers employed, they weaved or they focused their arguments on Justice Gorsuch because he's what's called a textualist. When interpreting statutes, he says we go by the text. And so their argument to him was the text says because of sex, doesn't matter whether Congress intended to include members of the LGBTQ community or not. It says because of sex. And anytime an employer makes a decision because of someone's, for example, a man's attraction to another man, when they wouldn't have done that if a woman was attracted to a man, then that's because of sex. Absolutely. And I think what was at least most compelling to me and is most persuasive when I have these conversations with friends and family and community members who might otherwise disagree with the ruling is that Gender was, again, by precedent, previously protected under Title VII, and, and that's the way the language was construed. So, you know, the argument was that you could not 
refuse to hire someone or fire someone or take any kind of adverse action towards someone in the employment context based on their gender. The argument towards freedom to discriminate against sexual orientation is that that is a completely different dimension of a person's identity. And I think what was most persuasive for me was that if you can imagine a scenario where I'm applying for a job to work with you and you are the potential employer, you're interviewing me, and through the scope of this conversation, you discover that I am in a gay relationship with another man. You could, if we interpret this as being separately distinct from anything previously protected, choose to discriminate against me based on my sexual orientation and my gay relationship or my gay marriage. But if I was a female, if I was a woman and every other circumstance in that scenario was the same, in other words, I'm in love with the same partner at home, that same man, then I'm in a heterosexual relationship and that is ostensibly okay with you. And so the only difference between those two hypothetical scenarios is my gender. And um, I think that that was brilliant on the part of, you know, the argument being made that we don't need an additional protection. It certainly would be nice if Congress would have the courage to add by statute and by code sexual orientation to the list of protected classes. But we need not have that step because we can already see that this is tantamount to a gender argument. Yes, I agree in the sense that these cases were really a change in the trajectory of the court, because prior to these cases, the lower federal courts had generally said sexual orientation was not discrimination because of sex. And as a result of that, there was a push to have a statutory fix. There is the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which has been introduced in Congress year after year and gone down to defeat, which basically said, you know, you wanted to have explicit federal protection for employees based on sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And so for many years, we've thought that the only way to get sexual orientation discrimination covered was to have a separate statute. So for Justice Gorsuch to agree with the plaintiffs and say, we don't need separate language. It was there all along, right in front of your faces, <laughs> that because of sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity. So truly a monumental shift in the interpretation. Absolutely. Let's talk about Bab v. Wilkie. And this is a, uh, a case that concerns the Age Discrimination and Employment Act and distinctions or clarifications between its application in the public sector versus the private sector. So this was another key case that went before the Supreme Court in, in recent periods. And uh, how did that change the traditional interpretation of the ADEA? I don't know if it was a change so much as a clarification so in this case, uh, this case involved a, a pharmacist at the Department of Veteran Affairs Medical Center who claimed she was discriminated against because of her age. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the issue became whether she had to prove what's called but-for causation. Does she have to prove that the explanation for the employer's action, if you take age out of the equation, if it wasn't for her age, they would have done something differently? Sure. And this is the traditional interpretation of the language in Title VII, the because of language. What's different in this case is that there is a separate section in the Age Discrimination and Employment Act that applies specifically to federal employers. And the language there is slightly different than the language in another section that applies to private employers and state and local government employers. So again, this is really a textual argument. And so, again, you know, you're talking a conservative court that comes down in favor of the plaintiffs, which in and of itself is, you know, unusual. But both of these cases, Bab and Bostock, turn on interpretations of the statutory language itself. So in Bab, the court agreed with the plaintiff that 
the use of different language in that section that applies strictly to federal employers argues against the interpretation that she had to show the same level of causation as she would if she had brought the case against a private employer. I think the um, distinctions between public and private employers are, are often elusive to a lot of folks, particularly if they haven't worked in the public sector environment, they aren't aware of these special prescriptions or differences in, in the way the rules are applied. But you brought up an interesting point that I think is important for people to to appreciate, and that is the the concept of but-for causation. In other words, the effect would not have occurred but for your actions or something that, that happened in this context. And the need to look beyond that in a context that is deeper because, and we look at this often in, in the negligence context, of course, which is not an employment discrimination subject per se. But I think it's really important to look at that because, you know, I often use the example when I'm discussing this with my students that if I stop you to shake your hand in the hallway as I see you at work today, and that takes two seconds out of your day, and that later on in the day puts you two seconds behind on your calendar and you happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time in an intersection to be hit by a drunk driver. Can you come back to me and say, well, you know, if you hadn't shaken my hand, I wouldn't have been in that exact place at that exact time for this to happen. That's obviously absurd, which is what leads us to the need for an assessment of proximate causation and the other elements that go into the the totality of the circumstances. Exactly. I'm having law school flashbacks. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> it'll have your head spinning the concept of causation yeah. and what it means. It's definitely a nebulous piece, and, and as particularly as it pertains, again, to public sector, private sector, I often think about the different rules around things like affirmative action policies and hiring standards as they apply to public sector employees that are vastly different from what the private sector has to deal with. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in the in the BAP case itself, the court had an example of, of trying to distinguish between, you know, but for causation and other forms of causation. And they gave the example of an employer who promotes an employee who's 35, who has a choice to promote a, an employee who's 35 or 55. And then they said, what if the employer's policy requires candidates to be given numerical scores? And these scores based on non-discriminatory factors. But then they have this requirement that any employee over 40 has to be docked five points. So that's where you're treating someone differently because of age. But in the example, it ends up not making a difference because even with the lower score, even if the uh, older employee had had a higher score, it wouldn't have changed the outcome in the decision because the younger employee still scored higher. So for them, that's an example of The age made a difference because you only applied the rule of docking five points to the people within the protected group, but it wasn't the but-for cause of the outcome, right? Because the younger employee still had a higher score, but under the court's interpretation, the decision was not made free from discrimination because you did apply a rule to those older people for no reason other than their age. Right. It was tangential to the ultimate outcome, but it was still an instance of inappropriate discrimination. That's the takeaway, I think. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Our Lady of Guadalupe School, the Morrissey Baru, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. What is a ministerial exception and how does this apply to... uh, to our daily lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that it applies to everyone's daily life, only if you are working for a religious employer, for example, right. would this come up. But it's actually a judge-made exception under Title VII. So in this case, we're talking, these are with the two fifth grade teachers who are suing religious employers. Mm-hmm. 
And the employer's defense is they can't bring these claims because our actions fall within what's called the ministerial exception. And so under Title VII, there are two statutory exceptions for religious employers, but there's also this ministerial exception, which is really a judge-created exception. And it's based on a case that the Supreme Court decided a few years ago, where basically they're saying if people hold ministerial positions, then the court is not going to interrogate, look into the reasons why an employer fires someone, because that is too close to the line of interfering with the First Amendment concerns of free exercise of religion and the establishment cause. Sure. The question, of course, becomes who fits under this ministerial exception. So Clearly, if you're the pastor, you're the priest or something. But these questions, these are all about lay people who work for these religious employers. Are they considered ministerial, meaning are they part of the ministry of the organization separate? And if so, then the exception applies. Were these schools, and I honestly, I, I had read a little bit about it, but were they religiously based teaching curriculum or was it just the, the fact that the namesake and, and the foundation, perhaps the endowment of the school happened to be some type of religious affiliation? No, I think it was both. At least from the cases it said, you know, these were elementary school fifth graders. Mm-hmm. So they taught everything, including religion. So part of the curriculum was the indoctrination into the religion itself, learning about the religious practices. So that was part of what they were teaching. Sure. And so we can certainly draw that out into a, an argument that, you know, ad infinitum where you say, okay, does the person that sweeps the floor in a church or a religious school qualify as ministry? And then does the teacher's assistant and does the cafeteria staff and so on and so forth, it kind of becomes a very slippery slope. That's right. And that's another one of those loopholes, right? Those exceptions that could potentially swallow the rule. And that's exactly the line drawing is where the courts are having trouble. And so basically the argument in this case, in the Supreme Court case, Hosanna versus Tabor, which was a few years ago where they first recognized this ministerial exception, Mm -hmm. they looked at four factors when they made the decision that the teacher in that case was part of the ministry. And so the argument by the plaintiffs in Our Lady of Guadalupe and the combined or the consolidated case, St. James, they were saying, we're different from that plaintiff in that earlier case, right? We don't have the same sort of background and training in religious doctrine that she had. And for these other reasons, you should treat us differently. So we shouldn't fall within the ministerial exception, whereas she in the Hosanna case did. Right. Because the courts will generally honor their precedents unless a a case for a significant or legitimate distinction can be made. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, I know there's there's plenty of other cases here, but I want to make sure we have time to talk about the future. And and so I wanted to ask, you know, we've we've seen some significant evolution in recent years and obviously the Supreme Court will continue to hear cases into the future. Do you see other major battlegrounds on the horizon in terms of protected classes that have not yet been addressed or particular cases in employment that need to be fleshed out in more detail. We've talked about, you know, a few already with respect to BFOQs in different contexts, but is there anything else that the court is looking forward to or that people are anticipating the court will opine on to offer some type of of rule or guidance moving forward? I don't know if there's a specific case that you would point to, but just in terms of general trends. And remember, a lot of this has to do with the extent to which what's going on in our society gets then reflected back into our rule. So one of the things 
the Me Too movement, for example, and what effect that will have on the law and how we interpret our laws on sexual harassment, for example, is something that continues to be an issue that people are talking about. Sure. We haven't talked about this much yet, but with respect to wage-based discrimination, of course, back in 2009, then-President Obama signed in the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which extended the statute of limitations on claims against wage-based discrimination. Do we see anything happening with that arena in terms of further evolution of, of law around paying fair wages and equal pay pursuant to the EPA? I haven't looked to see if there's been a significant increase in the cases. My understanding was it hasn't led to a, a huge number of these types of cases for, you know, a lot of these come down to procedural reasons. But also just in the wage context in general, you're looking at one of the things we've talked about is just what the difference a change in administration means. So many of the things that were on the radar in the Obama administration for example, it was the EEOC under the Obama administration that made the ruling that sexual orientation was because of sex in employment. And they also took some progressive stance on the wage and hour laws, which the Trump administration has either reversed or seriously undercut. So in this an election year, one of the things we look at in employment law is if there is a change in administration, what that's going to mean for a lot of these policies. Sure. And you mentioned earlier the the Me Too movement and the sexual harassment, sexual discrimination related matters. Just to provide context for our listeners, are there current prescriptions? Obviously, the, the act of harassing someone in most contexts, to the extent that it involves words or actions, probably qualifies as sexual assault or sexual battery, which is criminal on its own. But are there any prescriptions that are required under federal law now that, that businesses have to abide by? We could argue, of course, that it's a good idea to have things like sexual harassment training and making sure that people understand you know, what they can and can't do. But are those legally prescripted or, or prescribed, or are they just good advice and, and nothing that the, the employer really has to do? In the employment area, they are most definitely prescribed. Title VII, because of sex, has been interpreted to include sexual harassment as a violation of Title VII. Harassment on any basis is a violation of Title VII, whether it's religion or national origin. Under the Disability Discrimination Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, they have a provision against harassment on the basis of someone's disability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I wanted to go back in the context of our discussion about Our Lady of Guadalupe School, because we discussed how there are certain exemptions or loopholes with respect to religious institutions and churches and so on. So with respect to anything that we've talked about today, including the Me Too sexual harassment concerns and the prescriptions in Title VII there too, is there anything in Title VII that is hard and fast relevant and applicable to the religious institution world? Or is that world pretty much exempt from all manner of protections against discrimination or harassment of that kind? No, they're not. So the Title VII statutory exemptions talk about exempting religious employers from claims of discrimination on the basis of religion, but it doesn't exempt them from, or at least on its face, doesn't exempt them from discrimination on the basis of other characteristics based on race, for example. But when you talk about, we were talking before about trends that are coming up, what we're really starting to see in employment law is really this crossover, this conflict or potential conflict between protections under Title VII for, you know, including now, including sexual orientation and gender identity versus religious objections. Mm. So one of the 
issues that were raised in the courts in Bostock is this concern about what will religious employers do, or not just religious employers who have an exemption, but employers who have religious or moral objections to the employee's change in gender, the gender identity claims or something like that, and how the courts will resolve that conflict. Will they expand the concept of who can be considered exempt, right, to accommodate those sorts of concerns? Or will they enforce the laws against these employers that say that despite your moral objections, you still can't discriminate against someone just because of who they love? Right. And I think that's pertinent because I was thinking back to the Our Lady of Guadalupe case. And and obviously the, the key factor there, as I understand it, was the age. It wasn't that the teachers had suddenly decided that they were no longer going to subscribe to the religious denomination of the school for which they worked. It was the argument that there was an age-related claim there, but an exclusion or a, a reluctancy to pursue that on the ministerial grounds, which you would think would only be specific to the religious context and one's religious beliefs. No, absolutely. I think that's what's most probably disturbing about these cases is that one of the plaintiffs is claiming, you didn't renew my contract because I got old, right? right? Not because I wasn't being faithful to the religion. And the other one was, you didn't renew my contract because I have cancer. Right. (laughs) Yeah, medical issues. Yes. And in this case, by upholding the exemption, they're basically saying, yeah, if you are a ministerial employee, that your religious employer can just say, I don't care if you have cancer, I'm going to fire you. Yeah, it arguably opens the door for discrimination on the rest of the protected classes if age or medical disability or medical condition is no longer relevant grounds for protection. So That's exactly what the ministerial exception does. It expands the ability to discriminate on these other bases, which they otherwise would not be able to do. Absolutely. So in your janitor example, they wouldn't be able to fire the janitor, assuming you know a janitor can't be a ministerial employer, isn't a ministerial employee that you couldn't fire the janitor because he got cancer, but you can fire this teacher. Right, as long as they can be properly qualified as a minister. Yes. Well, perfect. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and perspectives on these topics, and thanks for joining me today for this episode of Intellectable. For more information about our university, visit us at study at APU.com. APU. American Public University.